Hello, and welcome to Stern Chats. I'm Daniel Yellen. And I'm Kathleen Dillon. Today on the show, we had the chance to talk with Amy Nelson. Amy is a Stern alum and has been the CEO of Venture for America since 2017. Now, I'm actually a Venture for America alum myself. I was in the class of 2015. And so I've been particularly excited to have this chat with Amy. I really enjoyed the conversation as well. It was great to hear more about Amy's childhood in the Midwest, as well as her transition to college in California, and then her time as a young professional working in international development, and ultimately her transition to Stern to get her MBA. In her current role as CEO of Venture for America, I appreciated Amy's candor around conversations she's had in the past few months in regards to diversity, equity, and inclusion, and what Venture for America is doing to address these issues. And something that I really appreciate about Amy as a leader, Kathleen, is that she's a fantastic listener. And so it was a great opportunity to ask her questions uh, and listen to her answers when she's been so open to hearing other people's perspectives in the past. Um, also, Amy's not shy about questioning systems and institutions and pushing us to be better for ourselves and for each other. And I think that really comes through in this conversation that we had. Totally agree. Let's dive in. From New York University Stern campus, this is Stern Chats, the podcast that tells the hidden stories between the lines of someone's resume. In the interest of serving the Stern community, building relationships, and unlocking important life lessons, we present these stories to a wider audience. Amy Nelson, welcome to Stern Chats. We're so excited to have you here today. Thrilled to be here. Thanks, Daniel. Yeah, I mean, I think if anybody knows me, they know I've been incredibly excited for this conversation as a former Venture for America fellow. Um, when I joined Stern Chats, this was one of the conversations I had in mind. So I'm really glad that we were able to make this happen. So I, I want to, of course, get to your tenure as the CEO of Venture for America, but I'd like to start off uh, rolling the clock all the way back. Um, I'd love to just hear a little bit about what it was like in your household growing up in the Midwest. Yeah, I, I thank you for the question. I grew up in a small town uh, about 15, 20 minutes outside of St. Louis, Missouri, but it was fairly, you know, between somewhere between rural and suburban. So cornfields and dairy cows, but also a bedroom community for, for the city. Um, I was raised by a single mother. My grandparents lived down the street. It was the kind of town where, you know, packs of children would sort of roam the streets on bicycles. I was the, the middle child of, uh, of, you know, three, two brothers. So I, I had that specialness of being the only girl, which probably mitigated the the middle child <laughs> syndrome a little bit. Um, and my mom was a nurse. So, you know, she worked really long hours and, you know, we had to defend for ourselves a little bit. Um, and the the community that I grew up in was one that was, you know, sort of a mix of, of middle and lower class, I would say. Um, and you know, it was a, a decent enough public school system. I went to public schools all through school, but, um, it was also, you know, what I sometimes call a low expectation environment where there was no one who was channeling you toward big dreams. It was go to the local college. If you're at the top of your class, maybe become a teacher, you know, some, some kids became lawyers and doctors, but that wasn't common. Um, and, and for me, I honestly had this um, very burning desire to, to get out. And, uh, you know, there, was, there were challenges that I faced in terms of 
just being different. And I remember when I was in high school, there were a group of older classmen that dumped garbage on my my front lawn and said, Amy Nelson is a freak uh, because I believed in things like gay marriage. Um, and And so for me, I was like, I have to get as far away from here as humanly possible in order to to achieve my dreams. And I know it's hard to not be a product of your environment. Um, but where do you think that those different beliefs came from? What kind of made you feel that, you know, you were different? What made you feel okay to say, for example, that you believed that marriage didn't have to be between a man and a woman, as most of society has accepted now? Yeah, so I, it was certainly a combination of my specific family, which was pretty liberal, uh, especially for for their own circumstances of, of growing up. And, um, and also, I would say this sort of just like, inchoate desire on my part to, to be different, to explore the world, and to like, really question authority. And I, I don't know where that came from necessarily, but it was something, or is something that I, I've always seen in myself. And Amy, you spoke about that desire to get out, explore, see something beyond Missouri and where you grew up. What led you to Claremont McKenna specifically? What was that college search like for you? Were you looking at a lot of schools? What was it that really drew you there? I I would describe it as somewhat arbitrary. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, on the one hand, I was like a total Gwenaby in middle school and really liked like No Doubt and Sublime and the Red Hot Chili Peppers and, you know, and some of the ska and, and more new wave stuff as well. So I thought Southern California was cool. Uh, I, it was geographically far away and didn't have winter. So that was like a good plus. (laughs) And, um, the reason, the way I found out about it actually was my mom's, one of her colleagues, uh, had a a niece, I think who went there and wanted to be an attorney. And at that point I thought I was going to be a lawyer. I wanted to study economics and international relations and Claremont McKenna has a, a pretty good program in that direction. Um, so I actually only applied to one college. I applied early decision. I applied sight unseen because I, I didn't have the financial wherewithal to visit. Um, and I, I didn't really have any guidance. It was that period where, you know, if you do substantially well on standardized tests, uh, you get all those college brochures and, you know, Claremont McKenna is, is a top school, but certainly no one ever suggested to me that I even try applying to a Harvard or Princeton. Uh, it wasn't on the table. Um, so it was, it was really like the judgment of a 16, 17 year old person. (laughs) Um, and I remember having this conversation with my mother because she, she worked for the university hospital, uh, St. Louis university hospital and got a substantial sort of tuition discount to go to school there. Um, my, my younger brother ultimately went to a public college, uh, in, in Illinois and and got in-state tuition, but I had to explain to her how financial aid worked and going to this incredibly expensive, private college was actually more affordable for our family than if I'd gone to St. Louis University, which is a perfectly fine institution, um, or to the local public school. 
Um, and, and she didn't have any context for, for why that might be. And that was something I totally had to learn on my own because, uh, you know, my mom had a two-year nursing degree and that was the only degree that anyone in my family had. So, you know, my older cousins, my older brother, none of them had gone to college. And so we just really didn't have context for, for how the system worked. And in school, you majored in philosophy. What was it that drew you to that kind of academic academic focus and, and studies? Yeah, in retrospect, maybe not the best sort of choice, for, <laughs> uh, especially for someone who's a first-generation college student, but it also somewhat arbitrary in that I took freshman philosophy, which was a, a required course. And I was, you know, we had our final exam and it was a written exam and the professor was in his office. So we, you know, did the exam in the classroom and then went up to hand in the thing sort of individually. And he stopped me as I, I handed in the exam and said, Amy, you've been like a real standout in this class. I think you should major in philosophy. You know, little did I know there were maybe 11 people who majored in philosophy in the whole school. Um, but well, it was a small I, school. Yeah, it's a small school, um, and I'd enjoyed the class. So I had been intending to to do economics and international relations, but I switched to um, government, which had many of the same requirements as international relations, but actually allowed me to study abroad for a whole year. <laughs> um, and, and philosophy just for, out of personal interest. Amazing. Where did you study abroad? Just out of curiosity. I, so I spent a year abroad. I did my the fall semester of my junior year in Cameroon, uh, in Central wow. Africa. And that was very much, one, I had been a part of um, like Model UN ever since middle school. One of the, the fortunate things I had growing up was like one of the only middle school Model UN programs in the country at that time. Uh, and it had been sort of my, you know, extracurricular of choice throughout high school and, and even into to early on in college, although debate kind of became my thing. Uh, over time. And I, um, I think it was also that same motivational desire, of, like, how can I get a as far away from St. Louis, Missouri as human po humanly possible? It was then like, how can I just get as far away from America as humanly possible? And, and at that point, you know, I, I thought I was going to be an ambassador or a human rights lawyer or, or something. So that semester in Cameroon was truly transformative for me. I ended up going back for my senior thesis and was planning to go back for a Fulbright actually um, after my senior year. And then I also spent a semester in Paris, um, which I, I don't necessarily recommend doing Cameroon and then Paris because by the time I got to Paris, I thought I was like worldwide and I was over kind of all the sorority girls who were, you know, living their abroad dreams. Uh, <laughs> probably a little rude, honestly, uh, and jaded at that point. The people who were living there, Emily in Paris. Yes, yes, it. exactly. <laughs> so I guess that makes a little bit of sense that you went into international development then mm -hmm. and nonprofit work after graduating. I, I, I was hoping you could talk just a little bit about that experience and that transitory period between your undergrad and then deciding to come to Stern for your MBA. Sure. So, you know, I had the the relatively unusual experience of, of uh, becoming pregnant my senior year of college. And you know, I graduated and was about six months pregnant. So I, I'd had this Fulbright offer, but ultimately ended up declining it, you know, moved home with my mother for some period of time, and then actually with, with my father and, and stepmother for uh, another couple of months. And you know, I was applying to grad school and thought I was going to sort of maybe get a PhD in, in government, got into some programs and 
ultimately decided that I really needed to make money um, and, you know, was really focused on the international sector kind of no matter what. So it would have been like a PhD in comparative government with an emphasis on like African studies kind of thing. And I was like, you know what, I actually like doing things. And I, I'd won like the, the senior prize for my thesis in college. And so I thought I was like good at academics, but it turned out that I was much better at like doing stuff. I don't have the patience for academics. So I ended up going to work for uh, an organization called Relief International. So I, the first year after college, I literally like was with a baby, um, gave birth living with my mother, et cetera. And then moved back to California, found an opportunity, um, like lived with a friend for a while, basically. And um, found an opportunity, was actually hired as an intern, was an intern for four days, uh, and then got a real job at the, the same organization. And did that for a little while and then moved on to a consulting firm that focused on nonprofits. And Spent a few years there. We managed, and all this was in Los Angeles, uh, we managed the sort of back-end offices for a couple of different small nonprofits. One of them was an organization called Cambodian Children's Fund. So, you know, the executive director was based in Cambodia, had, was American, um, and all the team and staff were there, but we handled the operations, the fundraising events, and, and sort of the fundraising structure. And at some point, the organization had just grown really, really quickly over the sort of two, two and a half years that I'd been working for them as a consultant. And they made the determination that it made much more sense to bring someone on in-house. And so I moved from that consulting firm to a full-time role at Cambodian Children's Fund, um, set up like a formal U.S. office, hired a couple of people, and was really, you know, I, I consider that period, especially when I was at the consulting firm, kind of my nonprofit boot camp. I learned all the things mm -hmm. that you need to to run a nonprofit and to sort of file the taxes and do an annual campaign in, in a pretty traditional way from a woman who'd been in the industry for 20 years and, and had a lot to teach. And so that foundation and and that inclination toward teaching is something that I think a lot of people don't have early on in their career. And it really set me up to be successful and have that knowledge base moving forward. So a lot of people have, you know, their reasons for going to get their MBA, whether it's they want to try to pivot industries, their company tells them that they need to, um, they want to build a certain set of skills. Um, what made you decide that an MBA would be your next step? Because we can get to whether you feel like it was the right next step. <laughs> yeah. So for me, I, I, on the one hand, I felt like I had sort of plateaued. The, the organization that I was working for, there wasn't a next step. Um, I was doing okay financially, you know, considering my age and my industry. Um, but at that point, I was a single mom with two kids. And I, I became really just jaded with the whole nonprofit, especially international development industry, um, had been doing just a lot of reading on the, the missteps. And actually, even going back to college, I was like, I'll never work for an international development agency because they're all evil. Um, and then it turned out that was really the only sort of path in uh, other than academics. So, so I, I discovered, you know, Cambodian Children's Fund was, was doing really good work. We were helping kids who'd been garbage pickers get an education and sort of move forward with their, their lives. But 
What I realized was that if our organization went away, these children and families would be right back to square one and that we weren't doing any real systems level change. And at the same time, I was on this hamster wheel of, you know, five, six years in between consulting and full time, asking the same set of people for money every year, Um, you know, the same stories, the same sort of like make them cry mentality. And I just felt like this isn't how change actually happens at the systems level. And I'd been reading, I read The Blue Sweater by Jacqueline Novogratz and, and was really interested in sort of the rise of the middle class in China. And I became convinced that some version of capitalism and business was really necessary in order to create like deep change um, that would allow people to thrive more generally. So I kind of looked around and all the people I knew who were smart had done something in business. And I was like, I guess I should go to business school, having majored in philosophy and knowing literally nothing about business. And my intention was really to move into impact investing or something in in the social enterprise sector. So I, I never really intended to do the traditional path, although part of me was aware that if I'd done like an investment banking associate program, um, I might be able to, to pathway into that investing role more easily. What I discovered in sort of learning about that career was that it was going to be physically impossible as a, as a single mom for me to have that job. So um, I stuck to sort of the more traditional, like direct route into business for good. What was your stern experience like socially? I would imagine as a single mom of two kids, it's a bit different than a lot of people's business school experience. Did you find that challenging, isolating, or was it quite rewarding in other ways? So I, I made a lot of really good friends there. I, I was the only person when we started, I was the only woman when we started who had children. And I was the only person who was a, a single parent. Um, there was one, maybe two men who had a child as well. Um, and over the course of the two years, there there was two people, both of whom were actually quite good friends of mine who either became pregnant or, or had children. You know, during that experience, but of the sort of 400 plus full-time students, it was, it was just me. And I think that people knew that about me. Um, but I still had the social experience. I didn't go out nearly as much as, as a lot of people, certainly not during the week, the week, maybe like a Thursday night thing. Um, but I, I was focused, especially because I'd worked for a really small company. Um, you know, I'd had three or four people in, in my office, which was also in my home when I was in California. And I'd had my second child while I was working for that organization. Um, and a lot of my friends from college had moved away from Los Angeles where I was living. And so I'd been really, really socially isolated for the past couple of years. Um, and so getting to Stern was really an opportunity for me to, to just make friends. Um, and Social Enterprise Association was a big piece of that. I was hopeful that I'd meet more like-minded people than I ended up meeting, but uh, I still, you know, had a, had a generally positive experience. And then, you know, most importantly, I met my husband there. Um, he and I like to joke that we were assigned to one another. So not only were we in the same block, we were in the same study group. And oh, we, were, <laughs> we were the ones who uh, I think did the, the bulk of the work. <laughs> and it were very different, right? So he actually ended up you know, going the investment banking route, he's, he's still in that line of work. Um, 
And I very much so was like, I'm going to save the world. Um, and so I generally had a good experience, um, but there were, there were definitely challenges along the way. I remember talking to one of the deans at one point about, you know, needing to have childcare for, for evening classes. And he was like, well, how many other single parents are there? And he, I was like, it's just me. And he's like, well, then it doesn't make sense for us to create a system that solves for that. Mm-hmm. And, and I wanted to be like, well, how many people aren't opting into this system because it's so expensive and because it's, it's basically impossible to do this. And the only way that I was able to make it work was to have like a nanny. And if only you can imagine what it costs to have a nanny while living on student loans. I was also working part-time for my second year. Um, it's absurd and and no one should have to do that. And the, the fact of the matter is like those opportunities are, are basically closed to people in that position, unless you're willing to take a really big financial gamble. First, it's funny because when we start here, they kind of joke with us that around 10% of the class are going to meet their significant others mm-hmm. at Stern, or at least while they're at NYU. So it's nice to hear that you are one of those. Um, there are three marriages in my block alone. Maybe wow. four. Yeah. <laughs> Did you hear that? Did you hear that, fellow classmates? Um, <laughs> but <laughs> then uh, I do want to talk about um, the issue of the financial burden of the MBA. So you, you, you've been critical of, of MBA programs in the past, um, particularly that they saddle graduates with debt and make it more difficult them, for them to pursue entrepreneurial ventures after graduating versus, say, the traditional post-MBA paths, consulting, banking, brand management. Um, I think it's important for listeners to really think about the value that they can get from an MBA, given that a lot of our listeners are prospective students. And so I'd love to just hear more about your perspective here on the value of an MBA. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I remember from strategy class talking about who is the customer. And for most business schools, the customer is the banks, the consulting firms, in Stern's case, perhaps the brand management firms as well. And it makes sense, right? As much as any institution wants to get away from this notion that we're like a quote unquote finance school, you have to, to satisfy someone along the way. And these are the entities that are paying and the students are not the customer, they're the product, right? And so you have to create a product that very consistently meets the needs of the customer. And so if if you're considering an MBA and you're like, holy shit, I missed the boat on banking or consulting or brand management coming out of undergrad, absolutely, it's the right decision, right? Like it's one of the only ways to on-ramp into those types of careers and the financial, you know, burden of, of loans should you have to take them out will almost certainly pay for itself. So I'm not against that. I don't think that those entities are evil. I have I have my criticisms, but like that's it's perfectly valid. I just think that if you're spending this amount of money, you need to understand what you're getting out of it. And people will tell you that it's the network, right? And very, very few business schools can legitimately say that they have a robust network of entrepreneurs, social entrepreneurs and people who've taken non-traditional paths in their alumni community. 
they just can't say it. Yes, there are some, but all of those individuals have really had to chart their own course. And there have been, in my opinion, you know, a lot of splashy stories about, in particular, you know, Harvard and Stanford minting all of these young tech entrepreneurs who've raised a ton of money and, and all that. But if you peel back the layers, all of those individuals came from privilege. None of them left business school, maybe not many of them, with six figures of debt. Because if you have six figures of debt, you have to service that debt. And your ability to take risks is just tremendously reduced. And so if that is something that you want to become an entrepreneur, I just encourage people to find ways to learn on their own, to network on their own, or to find programs that are really tailored toward that. Because the the promise of a business school either one assumes that you come from tremendous financial resources in order to achieve that, or two is really just branding. And I'm sympathetic to why they want to put that out into the universe, but I think they're not telling the full story. We have to take a quick break, but we will be right back with our conversation with Amy Nelson. Stern Chats is brought to you by The Person You Mean to Be. The Person You Mean to Be is an inspiring book by social psychologist and NYU Stern professor Dolly Chug on how to confront difficult issues, including sexism, racism, inequality, and injustice, so that you can make the world and yourself better. How do we stand up for our values? How do we respectfully talk politics with those who disagree with us? How can we be better colleagues and avoid being well-intentioned barriers to equality? Dali Chug answers these questions by starting with a look at ourselves. New York Times bestselling author Adam Grant says, Finally, an engaging, evidence-based book about how to battle biases, champion diversity and inclusion, and advocate for those who lack power and privilege. The Person You Mean to Be is available on Amazon or at dollychug.com. That's D-O-L-L-Y-C-H-U-G-H dot com. And by the way, You can also check out her free monthly newsletter, Dear Good People, at the same website, dollychug.com. Amy, thank you so much for being here again. Um, This has been such an interesting and informative conversation, and I'm really excited to talk about your experience with Venture for America. I'm curious to hear how you first heard about the organization and what that kind of entry point was for you. Yeah. So I was graduating from school and I was looking for jobs and I was interviewing with incubators, accelerators, social enterprise networks, some investment firms, like impact investment firms, and, you know, had, had a lot of dead ends, but also, you know, conversations that were interesting. And I read about Venture for America in the New York Times and the, this notion of an organization that was helping people like myself contribute substantially to these cities that really needed it deeply resonated for me because when I grew up success meant leaving and when I was coming out of college obviously like I had a young child and I would have loved to pursue my passions closer to home in St. Louis to be near family and I I really couldn't find that opportunity I looked around and, and didn't see anything and so in the 10 sort of intervening years between that moment 
and me finding Venture for America, a lot had changed in these cities. And there were these sort of emerging entrepreneurial ecosystems and, and social innovation labs, and this also this desire to sort of reinvest in core downtowns um, and stimulate economic growth where, where there had been several decades of disinvestment. So I, I got excited about the mission. I was like, why have I never heard of this? And, and one of the first fellows from the first class who was highlighted in this New York Times story was actually a Claremont McKenna alum, Brent Baltimore, who was, that was kind of how I, I found the article was through the sort of larger CMC network. So I, I saw that they were looking for like a development manager, which was definitely something, you know, a little bit below my, my level at that point. But I just kind of reached out and was like, hey, I have this background in fundraising. It seems like you've been growing pretty quickly. Like, here's who I am. Here's kind of what I'm looking for. Could I be helpful to you? And, you know, something like two weeks later, I was working there. Uh, and I, I hadn't thought that it was going to be the thing. But I, I met the team and I met Andrew Yang. And, and he has a way of Jedi mind tricking you into believing you know, that, that you're having ideas that are truly his. <laughs> uh, and I, I, I just got really excited. And so I came on to lead fundraising. The organization was about two years old at that point, um, had just placed its second class of fellows and hadn't really had a professional person um, doing fundraising. So I was tasked with sort of new city expansion, as well as kind of creating structures and systems around our fundraising operations, which had really been just like Andrew's charisma before that, uh, which had been successful in getting some large national institutions excited about the mission, but we, we needed to grow up. And so that was part of why I was there. And for those who might not know, can you give a brief description of what Venture for America is? Yeah, we are a fellowship program for recent college graduates who want to be entrepreneurs. And so our mission is really about economic development and job creation in cities through the lens of entrepreneurship. But we recruit about 200 or so young people, mostly seniors in college every year. Um, we identify them from a, a larger pool of 3,000 plus. And then we place them with startups and growth companies in cities like Detroit, New Orleans, Baltimore, now St. Louis. That was one of my first projects was working on St. Louis. Um, and our fellows spend a month with us in our training program, which is really about getting all the different skills you need to succeed in startup life, but more importantly about creating community, very similar to, to the way MBA programs are trying to create community and network. Um, and then the fellows spend two years working for an existing startup in one of the cities that we work in, almost like an apprentice, honestly, to an entrepreneur, although there's a lot of you know variation in, in how that happens. And then we have programs that are designed to help support them as professionals and also as future entrepreneurs, including you know, different pitch competitions, accelerator, et cetera. So we've been at it since 2011 with our first class in 2012. We've had about 1,200 fellows over the years, uh, generated about 150 new businesses from that community. So it's going well so far. Just curious to hear what you see the fellows doing after the program. Do a lot stay in entrepreneurship? Do they go down different roles, whether it's nonprofit, social impact? Just curious how that kind of experience inspires the next path you see a lot of these um, participants taking? Yeah, so about two thirds of our alumni are still working for startups and growth organizations. 
The remainder might be working for nonprofits or social enterprise or the government. Uh, they might be in graduate school or they might be working for a larger company, typically a tech company or maybe a VC. Um, so the, the vast, vast majority are still involved or touching sort of startups and tech in some ways. About half of our alumni still live in a VFA city. Um, more is used toward the younger alumni, as you can imagine. But we have pretty good retention in the cities as well over the long haul. So about a year before Andrew decided that he was going to leave the organization, I believe you had a conversation where you kind of stood up and said that this was a role that you would want, that you would want to go on and take on that CEO role. I, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about what that conversation uh, taught you about standing up for yourself, um, what it was like, and what that transition period was like. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. So it was, I think, December of, it must have been 2015. So I'd been with the organization just over two years. I, I wasn't the second in command at that point. I was still, you know, head of fundraising. Things had been going well. And um, Andrew and I had been been chatting and we were just in a conference room kind of post-meeting and he was speculating out loud about kind of wanting to identify someone to be the president of Venture for America who could ultimately be his successor. And you know, he he sort of indicated that maybe he planned to leave at some point, but there was never sort of a, a defined plan for that. And I honestly didn't believe it because it was such a big part of his identity and brand. And so he was he was literally listing names of people that we knew, you know, kind of in the broader social enterprise community or entrepreneurship community. And I, I sort of was listening and I looked at him and I said, so what you're telling me is that you don't see that for me. Mm. And he was like, um, duh, duh. <laughs> well, I, I didn't know that you would want that. And, you know, he talked about the demands of the job and, and the travel. And I was like, I've been traveling alongside you for a really long time now. I, I get it. And he was like, okay. And so we made an agreement that he would give me a set of leadership opportunities externally. Because I'd been a little bit the guy behind the guy for a while. And I'd been in all the board meetings, but I hadn't necessarily done a lot to represent the organization totally on my own. So I started, started taking a lot more meetings on my own. Um, and I remember he had like an opportunity to write something for a publication that he passed on to me. He passed on some like panel speaking opportunities that were perhaps, you know, um, a little bit below his level and, and just as, as a test. And so then in somewhere January or March of the following year, he formally moved me into this number two spot. We actually created a role called managing director. And then he, over the, the course of that next year or so, really started to remove himself from the day-to-day -day and was much more doing the external events and, and sort of figurehead type of stuff. And at some point also started, I think, writing his, his second book. So in January of 2017, so this is a little over a year after we have that conversation, I've moved into this role. I've started making some, some key strategic changes about how we structured the organization. Uh, we started a strategic planning process. He came to me and said that he was planning to leave. Uh, we had a series of lunches. So it was like, I'm planning to leave. And the second one was, I'm going to run for office. And then the third one was, I'm going to run for president. And I was just so confused. <laughs> um, 
So was I. But, you know, we put together a plan and he ultimately did put me forward to the board as his successor. They made that decision in in March of 17. Um, They didn't do an external search. They made a decision not to do one. Um, And that allowed us to transition pretty, pretty smoothly. And he formally left at the end of August that year. And Amy, I know that diversity, equity, inclusion has been something that's been near and dear to you during your time in the CEO role. Can you talk a little bit more about your, how you just how you think through those issues and how you think about the place um, that Venture for America holds on those topics? Absolutely. So when we first started, there was really this narrative around revitalizing cities. And, and it sometimes veered into this sort of white savior type situation. Um, and, and that was a criticism of our organization that cropped up then and, and, and probably still cropped up, crops up now. And we really wanted to move beyond that because it wasn't our truth and it wasn't who we wanted to be. And at the same time, we had recognized that particularly our first few classes just weren't terribly diverse when it came to, to gender or to race, um, and also to LGBTQ representation. And that had changed a little bit over time through intentional work from you know some of my colleagues and myself, but we didn't have a strategy. And we also didn't have universal buy-in to the importance of centering equity and inclusion in our work. Uh, and that was all the way you know from the board through the fellows, there were a lot of different opinions and and a lot of noise. So as we went through this strategic planning process, it was really about discovery, but it was also very much so myself uh, and and several of my key colleagues and and board members believing very firmly that we wanted to take Venture for America in a more explicit direction around centering diversity, equity, and inclusion, making real goals, asking ourselves hard questions, changing systems and structures within the organization where necessary. Um, and we're, we're still on that journey. So we we decided in 2017 to name diversity, equity, and inclusion as one of our key strategic pillars, of which there are three in our strategic plan. And, and some of the language that we use is about being an on-ramp to entrepreneurship for historically excluded communities. And, um, you know, as we move forward, rather than it being it's a standalone concept. We're really moving toward a place where DEI is a lens over everything that we do. Um, It's not one person's job. It's everyone's job. It's not a thing that you go check the box on and do a workshop and make sure you're hitting your numbers. It's it's constant work. Um, And it requires, particularly as a leader, being comfortable holding a mirror up to yourself and, um, and, and reengaging constantly. You can't, you can't sort of like take your foot off the gas um, and requires a tremendous amount of, of humility as well. So, you know, this year in particular, we had started this engagement with uh, a consulting firm to really audit all of our DEI practices and are now implementing a lot of those recommendations as well as recommendations that have been surfaced by the fellows themselves and other members of our community. Um, and I, I'm proud of the work that we've done it, it certainly hasn't been easy and it's certainly not over but i i'm glad that 
my my board and my team had the moral courage to to take that stand and to be willing to to really make changes and not just sort of like paint a rainbow flag on top of the organization. Um, and and I know it's not perfect, and and certainly there might be fellows that or, or team members that that hear this and still have criticisms, and, and I welcome those. So that's actually something that I really appreciated when I was a fellow. I, I always felt like the leadership of the organization was approachable and willing to listen to criticisms that we had. Um, just thinking about the last six months where we've had this national reckoning on race mm-hmm. and racial equity and racial inclusion um, and these difficult conversations around police brutality and other issues. What have those conversations been been like for you with the fellows um, and how have you supported as an organization, I'm sure, some of the concerns that the fellows have had around these issues in the last six months? Yeah, there, there's been some, some tough stuff in there. Certainly a lot of listening, particularly to the experiences of individuals who were involved in the early days, um, in particular Black fellows who didn't always feel included, um, or individuals who faced real challenges in the work environments that they were in. And so a, a big piece of what we do relies on there being startups in these cities. And we do our best to assess the leadership, but we don't have a lot of control over that environment. We're, we're making some changes to really put some rails on that. But there are fellows who have experienced overt racism and sexism in the workplace, and they didn't always feel protected by Venture for America when they they encountered that. And that was probably the hardest thing for me to listen to, particularly um, when I, I was in a position to potentially have done something in the past, and I, I didn't feel like I was empowered to do so. Uh, and I didn't really know what to do. And, and now that's a change that we're making. Um, and, and the other thing that I also hear though is, is gratitude. <laughs> and, and that's what keeps you going in the work. Um, and so the conversations aren't over, but I do feel like the team in particular is just grateful that they are working for an organization where they can bring their full selves. So in my personal experience, uh, Venture for America is an organization that's about community it's about mm-hmm. relationships. It's about collective experiences um, in many ways, like an MBA program. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and one of the experiences that was most meaningful to me was training camp. Um, mm-hmm. So five weeks intensive, learn the skills of what it takes to contribute in a meaningful way to a new venture. Um, and typically all the fellows are together at some school. For me, it was, it was mm-hmm. Brown um, living in dorms. And those 120 fellows in my class in a lot of ways, I describe them as camp friends, right? You don't know them for that long, but you have this really intense experience together. And I now have a group of people who I know in 15 or so cities across the country. I could pick up the phone, call them at any time, and they wouldn't question why. Um, I imagine that this year was different. Um, How has the organization had to adapt in these last few months because of COVID, specifically relating to training camp and how has your role as CEO changed in these last six months in continuing to build this aspect of community around the organization? 
Yeah, it became clear pretty early on that training camp was unlikely to be in person. Although, you know, I wish we'd pulled the trigger on that a little bit earlier, but, uh, you know, information was, was tough to come by uh, in, in the early days of COVID. But we, we had a number of conversations about what a, you know, digital and, and dispersed program might look like. And the team really methodically tried to elevate the core goals of training camp, which are around the skills, but also around the community, and to build new systems to create virtual community. Um, and so we relied a lot on small groups. We created something called Credo Houses. Daniel, you know the Credo very well, but it's these series of statements that all VFA fellows adhere to. My career is a choice that indicates my values. I will act with integrity in all things. Um, and it's really this unifying language that the fellows have. And so we have this ritual of telling Credo stories in the morning and at the end of training camp every day. So we kept that. But then we did assign something like a block system, like in business school, but we called them credo houses. And we had a credo house cup, Harry Potter style, that mm -hmm. created competition between these groups of 40 or so individuals. And then within that, we sort of replicated the study group model. Uh, we call them challenge teams, which we've also always done in training camp. But this year, all of your challenge teams were within your credo house. And they rotated each week so that fellows got the opportunity to meet a small group of people and work with them really intensely, but a number of individuals. And then we had socials uh, and sort of social opportunities that were available kind of whenever. And then we also had something called goal setting groups. Those were groups of about nine people who had a VFA team member um, as their sort of like champion. And they started meeting actually weekly prior to training camp. Um, and a lot of that was around setting goals for their job search. So we created a lot of opportunities for folks to get to know each other in small group environments um, in ways where people were intentionally put into diverse groups. And then we also did create opportunities for different affinity groups, we call them rise groups, to get together as well. And so you know, we ended the program with something like 99% of fellows saying that they identified with the VFA mission and credo, uh, very close to 90% saying that they had made a good friend and felt connected to the community. And our metrics on, on those key indicators, our NPS score was actually higher than last year, um, were, were very, very similar to prior years. Um, and in some cases actually exceeded prior years. So Part of it was expectations. I think I think the expectations were low given the bad job that uh, most universities did in the quick transition to remote. We had the benefit of, of time and forethought, um, but it was really just about okay, what what makes this experience special? What do we know we can replicate in this environment? What is going to be tougher? Um, one of the challenges was typically most fellows have their job before training camp, but we had to push our placement process back because there was so much uncertainty. So the vast majority of fellows were job searching while doing training. And so we had to dramatically reduce the number of core hours in the training program um, in order to accommodate for that. And also the fact that we had people in multiple different time zones, uh, which we'd never <laughs> had to wrestle with before. So I mean, we had actually someone in Hawaii, we had people in Europe, we, we, we focused around, you know, the, the four core continental US ones, but um, it was, it was definitely a challenge and, you know, I take no credit for the success. It was really the team, but uh, people worked really, really long and hard to make it work.
And, and then in terms of like me, I think that was the second part of your question. I, I was very ac accustomed to being on airplanes and, you know, having a lot of external meetings, maybe doing speaking events here and there. Uh, that hasn't happened. I mean, there have been a few things, but it's really been a time where one, I've, I've got to, I've had the opportunity to be in place and spend more time with my family, which is a blessing. Um, and, and also to really spend more time individually with different team members uh, in a way that I haven't always in the past and, and getting a little bit more involved in our programs in particular, but, but also some of our other pieces of the work and, the, you know, not in a way that's like overbearing, but um, it's been, it's been nice, honestly. There's, there's a lot of existential angst out there and I've just tried to create an environment where my team can, um, can still thrive. And I know it hasn't been perfect, especially for folks who maybe have children uh, that they're trying to homeschool at the same time. But at the end of the day, like we're about humans, as you said, and, and we're a community of humans. We're not really an organization. Um, and so we have to have to center that. My, my favorite part and maybe my, my class, the 2015ers uh, favorite part of the credo has always been, there's no courage without risk. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think you've been very courageous in your career. You've been a courageous leader uh, for Venture for America. You've taken lots of risks. Um, and I just want to thank you so much for being with your, being here with us today. Um, I've really enjoyed this conversation. This has meant a lot to me. And uh, yeah, thank you so thank much. Thank you so much. Uh, th that's really kind of you to say. And um, I'm, I'm so glad, Daniel, that you're a big VFA booster uh, and, and will forever be a part of the community. And, and I think courage is something that we don't always understand as a society or, or that we... Um, we say we value, but we don't, and, and we don't really know the true meaning of it. So I'm, I'm grateful to you. Thanks Thank so you much for having me.